0: Amos, let's talk about the prophet first, and let's talk about his occupation. You can figure some of this stuff out from the text of Amos. This is how we know it, the things that he says about himself. What you know is that he's not from the prophetic school. So Amos 7.14 lets you know that he is not a professionally trained prophet, so to speak. He's in fact a shepherd and a dresser, or what's called a piercer, of sycamore trees. Was he wealthy or was he from a lower social class? It's a little bit hard to tell. I fall into the camp of that he's wealthy and that he is a shepherd, but the word used there is almost like a breeder of herds. We're talking about he's in the sheep business, not just a shepherd that somebody's hired. It it doesn't change anything except perspective. When you have a, a lower class person railing against the upper class, there is this little of, well, yeah, of course you would. You're jealous. When there is a upper class person railing against his own class, you tend to give them a little bit more credibility. He's definitely educated. He's not from the prophetic schools, but he's no dummy. And he clearly has some formal education because he demonstrates knowledge of internal affairs. He understands the working of government and of uh, nations. He demonstrates knowledge of life in the city. It's not like he's been a hick out in the sticks and has no idea what real city life is like. And he demonstrates literary skill. He does some very clever wordplay in the book of Amos. And so he, he knows the language well, and he's good at what he writes. But he's got a real problem here, which is, how's anybody going to listen to him? Educated or not, he's not from the prophetic schools. Wealthy or not, he's not in the elite political class. And so he is going to come and tell these people what God has to say to them and what's wrong with them and expect that they will give him a hearing, that they will listen. And so part of the challenge of Amos is how is Amos going to get the people to listen to him? What does it take to get people to hear the word of God? Let's talk about the historical situation. Uh, Probably somewhere 760 to 755 just based on who is who is king. So what do we know about this period of time? Well, it's actually a time of political stability. When we talked about Israel's history by and large, we talked about a lot of instability, unrest, a lot of being afraid of other nations coming in and making war with you, a lot of turmoil and turnover in leadership. This was a period of a lot of political stability. Jeroboam II and King Uzziah both reigned for a long time. There was no major foreign military threat right now, and it was a period of military expansion. In the southern kingdom, Uzziah built up a huge army and increased Judah's involvement in the production of goods and trades. In the northern kingdom, Jeroboam II came to the throne roughly the same time as Uzziah, and he restored a lot of the fallen territory around Damascus. And so the people are, it doesn't take too long to get used to stability and not being afraid. And so this was a time of economic growth and luxury. When you have stability, you have the opportunity, you have have economic opportunity. You can, your stuff isn't getting destroyed. You're not having to spend money rebuilding stuff. You're not having to spend as much money on defensive armies. You are more comfortable. And so you spend more and there 's uh, a lot of economic growth, and then there is exuberant luxury uh, that that takes place in this time. You can see this look at uh, verses like, go to chapter three and look at verse fifteen houses well built and expensive, and these are both summer and winter houses right. <laughs> Chapter five is going to talk more about the quality of their houses. Chap- chapter, go to chapter six and look at the first four verses of chapter six. Karen, will you read those one through four? Woe to those who are at
1: ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the noble men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calneh and see and, and see, and from there go to Hamath the great. Down the gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seed of violence. Woe to those who lie on the beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils are not grieved over
0: the ruin of Joseph. So you can picture that, right? There, this is the this is the cartoonish picture of the person in the ancient world laying on the chase lounger, being fed grapes, drinking wine, not out of cups, but out of bowls, being anointed with luxurious oil, living at ease. This is the way that the people are are living. It's also a period of great religious activity. The money coffers are overflowing because people have money, so that's when they're generous with money is when they have it. And people are, the religious activity was well established. They're following the rituals and the routines and the feasts and all that things, which means that this was also a time of hypocrisy and depression. Go back to chapter 2. Andrew, you got it there. Read 6 and 7. Thus says the
2: Lord... For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned.
0: Sell the righteous for silver. Sell the needy for sandals injustice for the poor and the afflicted, sexual immorality. All the while the coffers at church are full and people are keeping the feasts. They're making the sacrifices. But this is how they're living. And so it's a time of great hypocrisy. The covenantal stipulations, God's covenant with Israel, required loyalty to God and love toward one's fellow man. But the idolatrous worship of the pagan neighbors infiltrated the two kingdoms and it produced this strange situation which we call syncretism and which we still see today which is where people are comfortable weaving in religious Jewish here or Christian religious practices with the things of the world. They're very comfortable acting as though they're living under the covenant of God because I'm willing to do X, Y, and Z. I'm willing to go to church. I'm willing to tithe. I'm willing to fight for the Ten Commandments to be on the courthouse steps. But I'm not willing to actually be loyal to God and to love my neighbor. I'm going to continue to oppress the needy. I'm going to continue to practice sexual immorality to do what I want to do because the pagans are cool with that. And so mixing all of that together is, is syncretism. It's creating a false a third religion. You may call it Christianity, or they may have called it Judaism, but it's actually creating an entirely new religion where they take parts and pieces of a lot of different religions and worldviews. So for them, this was, you know, they're going to the temple, they're keeping the feasts, they're doing the sacrifices, they're putting money in the coffers, while these pagan... Altars; these pagan high places are still all over the countryside and they have idols to pagan gods within the walls of their cities. And so the people would trust in this day of God's coming in chapter five and Amos, he, you know, they they're waiting for the day of the Lord. They've, they've cherry picked a part of faithful religion that they want to be a part of their worldview. Levitical worship in chapter 4, the sacrifices and the temple system, but the ethical concerns of the law the being holy as God is holy wasn't part of the religion they wanted. So they just flush that and they create their own thing. How does God respond to that kind of worship? Renee, will you go to chapter 5 and verse 21 through 27.
3: Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sica, your king, and he and your star God, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts.
0: Yeah, but at least they were going to church. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. You see how quickly we say that? Yep. Well, at least he's in church. God places a high value on integrity. And it's important we know what this word means because a lot of people think integrity means something like good morals. But it doesn't mean that. What's the root of integrity? Integer. What is an integer? A whole, undivided number. The word integrity is about consistency. It's about moral consistency. And so God says it's the opposite of hypocrisy. Integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. You can have integrity and be a godless heathen. That might be better than what's happening here, which is the hypocrisy of claiming to be a follower of God and yet living without loyalty to God and without love of neighbor. How do you get that way? How did they get this way? Two things, I think, are jump out from the text of Amos. One is, when you reject the word of God, it leads to a distorted view of life. When you reject the word of God, you don't understand anything rightly. And if you tried to build a worldview out of your own understanding, contra God's revelation, you're not going to end up with integrity. You're going to end up with hypocrisy, inconsistency. Hypocrisy is just the mean word for inconsistency, right? You you cannot have a clear view of life apart from God's revelation. And so if you tried to build a worldview that begins by rejecting the word of God, This is where you're going to end up. And then the second is prosperity. Prosperity makes things harder. Prosperity is not bad. We should want prosperity. But we should be very careful to recognize that it is very, very hard to recognize your need for God when you are prosperous. The things in which you are prospering what money is an obvious one but another one is simply affirmation and satisfaction if you're finding affirmation and satisfaction in godless things it is very hard to realize that what you actually need is God I am affirmed, I am happy I am satisfied, what need do I have of God and even if you have an intellectual awareness that you need to tip your cap to God you're not going to be loyal and devoted to God and so you're going to end up here with this hypocrisy, with this syncretism. Let's take the parts of God that are acceptable and inoffensive to me and blend those with the way I want to live. And what Amos warns us about in part is our temptation to do that in our lives or to look at that at others and say that that is immature religion or we want to put a nicer name on it than, no, that's syncretism. <laughs> that's not Christianity. Uh, the, the sociologists at the University of North Carolina who studied religion in America over the last hundred or so years or go back to Machen in the early 20th century who looked at liberal Christianity and said liberal Christianity is not the right name for it. It's not Christian. It's not Christianity. And then uh, the sociologist Christian Smith and others come along and do research more recently into what is the predominant religion of the American culture. People even who go to church or who call themselves Christian, what's the dominant religion? And that's that phrase you've probably heard, moralistic therapeutic deism. And I think those titles are important because they remind us it's not Christianity, It's not just a deficient version of Christianity or a baby version of Christianity. It's a different religion. And so in Amos, these people are not practicing immature faith in Yahweh. They're practicing a religion of their own making. And they took the stuff they wanted, the stuff they could tolerate, the stuff that made them feel good, from Judaism, and they created this new religion. So it's this hypocrisy, this combination of material prosperity and corruption that leads to religious compromise. That's what will bring about the end of the northern kingdom. As we were reading about this in other books and sermon series that we've done, the the way that the kingdom will be conquered militarily, this is what God is bringing judgment on. This is what lays the groundwork for it. So questions about the historical situation, the religious situation, kind of how they got that way. So Paul,
4: does Amos, like you said, how does he, how do they listen to him? Like, do you think this was spoken, like, out loud? Do you think this was just, this is just written? we you know? Spoken
0: out loud. Okay. These prophecies will be spoken out loud and then recorded in writing, either by the prophet or a scribe of the prophet. And what what you don't know is, uh, unless scripture Specifically, says so, you don't know how many times the message was given. Normally, when it's written down, it's a summary a recapitulation of what the prophet said over the course of the prophet's ministry. So unless the prophet is recounting a specific conversation in a specific moment, what we're getting in writing is the, the thrust, the, the cliff notes, and the unpacking, the executive summary of, of the prophet's message. But let's answer that question. How do you get these people who have no interest in listening to you to listen to you? When we want to give people some bad news, what do we typically pair it with? Right? Got bad news and good news. When we want to correct somebody, what do we typically pair it with? Praise, compliment, encouragement. So, we're familiar with some of the kinds of things you may do to get heard. And what Amos does to get heard is very clever. He begins by pointing out the errors in Israel's neighbors, in their enemies. Let's talk about what they're doing wrong. Because you can imagine, people are very quick to get on board with criticizing others. So it does two things. One, it kind of perks their ears up. Oh, what, what, what are they doing? And then two, it removes the opportunity for defensiveness because there's no way the hearer is going to come to the defense of their neighboring enemy. They're going to pile on, if anything. And so it removes that opportunity for, well, I'm not sure that you have all the facts of the situation, which is exactly what happens when you try to oppose somebody directly. If I had a map, what I would show you is he starts with an oracle against Damascus, which is Syria. That is to the northeast of Jerusalem. And then he goes to the Philistines, which are southwest of Jerusalem. And then he goes to Tyre, which is north, closer to Israel than than Damascus. Then he goes to Edom, which is the southeast, there over by the Dead Sea. Then he goes to Ammon, which is northeast of the Dead Sea. And then he goes to Moab, which is east of the Dead Sea. And what he does is he basically draws a circle on the map, if you connect all these points, with Jerusalem in the middle. And he says, let's talk about everybody around you. Let's talk about all their problems and the things that they have done wrong. So first comes the prophecy against the nations. This is from chapter 1, verse 3, to chapter 2, verse 3. He judges these nations based on their war crimes, their cruelty, their inhumane treatment. Uh, Justin, will you read chapter 1, 9? Read verse 9 first, and then 11 and 12.
4: Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood so i will send a fire upon teman and it shall devour the strongholds of basra thus says the lord for three transgressions of the ammonites and for four i will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in gilead that they might enlarge their border
0: war crimes they ripped open the women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. They, uh, Before that, verses uh, 9, 11, and 12 are about breaking treaties. So it's easy to get people on board with recognizing the evil of their neighbors when their neighbors have done stuff like this. It's not like he's bringing up fake issues here. These are real things that he's calling their attention to their violation of treaties and their atrocities, their inhumane treatment. They are judged not against their covenant with God because God doesn't have a covenant with them. They're judged against the light that is given to all men. The moral consciousness that all people have where you you know that's wrong. You know everything he just read is wrong. You can't do those things. Um, and so that's the basis on which they're judged. But then comes the judgment against Judah. So this is chapter 2, 4 and 5. Somebody read this. Crystal, can you read 2, 4 and 5?
3: Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem.
0: So on what basis... Were the nations judged? The light that's common to all people. On what basis was Judah judged?
2: Well, special revelation.
0: Because they despised the law of God. They despise the law of God. The special revelation God gave, they set it aside. They don't want to build their life around it. They have more light than the nations. And so they are judged on the statutes that God had given them. They are judged more harshly. We're still in chapter 2. Now, 6 through 16, we're going to talk about two besetting sins of Israel. The two crimes that come out are 6 through 8. Matt? Uh,
4: Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken and pledged, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been blind.
0: So two besetting sins of Israel. One is abuse of power in the social realm. Those were all the examples of injustice, of sexual immorality. The, the leaders of Israel and the high class of Israel abused the power they had to get whatever they wanted in the social realm. They were going to live however they wanted to live, do whatever they wanted to do, squash anybody they needed to squash. They were going to get what they want. And then two was that syncretism I talked about, the compromise with paganism. Because when you reject the word of God, that is what's going to happen. So the Lord brings a covenant lawsuit. And in many ways, this is what the book, this is going to be a common theme in prophets. So this formula is a good one to learn. We definitely have that here where the Lord is going to bring an accusation. He's going to judge the accusation and then he's going to explain the consequences it starts at the very beginning of the book to let us know this is what 's going to happen back in verse two chapter one, verse two, it says that Yahweh roars like a lion, he sends a drought to get his people 's attention there's this there 's this summoning that God does with his people. Yahweh roars, come and listen. To this complaint is the technical term. Not just he's whining about his people, but it's a formal complaint that God is issuing against his people. So you'll have a, an introductory summons. That'll be like when the word here, my people, or here is used, or when the word woe is used. That's what's happening there. Same thing with Jesus in the New Testament. When he says woe to, he's not just grumbling about people. He is bringing a formal complaint where he's going to set before you the, the charges and then the result of them being found guilty of that. So he talks in chapters 3 and 4 and on about these, these oracles, the location of these, these pronouncements. And the same themes are going to come up again and again and again. If you read the book, it's the theme of the lavish homes. It's the theme of the luxury of the upper class. It's the theme of the perversion of justice. And whenever God comes back to the punishment, it's always going to be the punishment of the exile chapters 3, 4, 5 and 6 all have references to the exile as God's judgment on his people for these specific sins. So the Lord summons his people he reads his charges against the people and he pronounces judgment on the wickedness of his people. And that's what's going to happen in all of these complaints and it's no different in this particular book. Probably one of your most known verses from this is chapter 3 verse 2, right? Somebody read that? You only I will you, for all your you have I known among all the families of the earth. So you can see how the laser focus of why people are being judged gets more and more narrow. The surrounding nations are judged by the light that is common to all people. Northern Kingdom is judged by the fact that they have the word of God. They have the Pentateuch. They have the law and the writings. And now we're dealing with Judah. And we're saying, not only do you have that stuff, but you alone have I known of all the nations of the earth. You're the people of God. You're my covenant people. You think about that. It's an intimate relationship. It's a a husband and wife type relationship that God is talking about here. And it's a covenant that God chose. I chose you for this relationship. And so the the privilege of a covenant relationship brings with it special responsibility. And that's why God says, therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. In chapter 3, God wants to make sure Israel understands that their disasters are not some accident. That God is sovereign over all of nature and all of history. And none of these calamities that have come upon them are, are a surprise or are, are outside of something that God is doing. Look at chapter 3, 3 through 8. Just glance through those verses. God is sovereign over all of the disaster and calamity. And the prophets have been telling the people that this is God's judgment. You cannot have a covenantal relationship with God. You cannot be chosen by God to enter into that covenant relationship. Not keep your end of the deal and expect God to be okay with that. And these are hard verses in the Bible. But this is what Hebrews chapter 6 is all about. It is worse for you. Hebrews 6 says you had all the advantages. You tasted the heavenly gift. I'm not quite sure what that means. But it is some combination of the means of grace. The experience of the means of grace. Word, sacrament, all of it. You tasted the heavenly gift. And yet you rejected the promises. It's worse for you. It's really bad. That's exactly what the prophets are saying to these people. Is God chose you from all the families of the earth. And you have set aside his revelation. You've created this syncretistic religion, if that's a word. And you live the way you want to live. And you're just fat and happy. Because they are. They're just fat and happy. You cannot do that and expect God to withhold judgment. You just can't. You're not listening to God at all. So God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to tell his people, judgment comes for this. Turn. Repent. Judgment comes for this. This is what brings judgment. And they won't listen to the prophets, and the prophets have to figure out how to get a hearing, and so they talk about the neighbors, and then they... But eventually, it comes down to this. This is about you. This is a covenant lawsuit. And then that leads to the visions of Amos. So let's stop there for a minute. Any questions about the message of Amos, this covenant lawsuit that God brings, and then the visions, I think, make a lot of sense once you get that that's where we're at. Just a quick general question.
2: When the prophets would say these messages, do you think that, like, anyone was listening to them? Do you think they affected some, like...
0: I think so. Yeah. The Word of God. Now, the Word of God can also accomplish the purpose for which it was sent in judgment. But it's hard for me to imagine that there were no remnant hearing this and responding to it among the people of God. The prophets often felt that way. Yeah. But the Bible gives us a couple examples of prophets feeling that way and God saying, You don't you don't know what I'm doing in people's hearts. You don't <laughs> stop it. <laughs> Renee? What's with the, the three transgressions? Says that over
3: and over again. Warm
0: yeah, so a lot of times in the Bible, it's a poetic form to give a number and then sometimes a number plus one. Mm-hmm. And What it means is the number itself may have meaning. So three is a number of completeness. So this is the fullness of your transgression. And then when it does plus one, it's even more than full. So this can be a really good thing, or in this case, it's a really bad thing. So this is the completeness of your covenant violation and it's even more than that you are so much worse than even the completeness it's like you
3: saying i've waited as
0: long as i possibly can. yeah and got you know you'll read in the proverbs six things i have hated seven i have despised that's that model this plus 1 it would have been enough good or bad it would have been enough with the first number and i'm showing you it's more than enough but and a lot of numbers three, six, seven. 12, and then every multiple thereof has poetic meaning in Hebrew. <laughs> 1,000. Sorry, I should have added 1,000 to that. That's an important number. So then when you, when you get to the visions, which admittedly are weird, they're especially weird for us. This is a type of literature that we don't do very much. The visions have one purpose, which is to show the inevitability and the finality of this judgment. That if you do not turn back, this judgment is inevitable and it is final. So you have five visions of judgment in Amos, and then this little section in between from a little bit in chapter 7 and a little bit in chapter 8 that are non visionary material. So you have visions 1 through 3, that's chapter 7, 1 through 9, first three visions. Then you have some non-visionary. Then you have visions four, more non-visionary, and then the fifth. So let's talk about the five visions. All right, vision one. This is chapter seven, one through three. Somebody, Justin, will you read seven, one through three?
4: This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. Behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord.
0: All right, so vision one, the locusts. The pattern is it describes an event of judgment, these locusts. And then Amos pleads with God to forgive the people. And the judgment is withdrawn. There's no explanation. The judgment is withdrawn. Doesn't happen. All right, vision two. Somebody uh, read four through six.
2: This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God.
0: Same pattern as the locusts. There's a vision of a judgment. Amos pleads with God to stop. The judgment is withdrawn, and there's no explanation for it. Now this one is fabulously ironic. What's the irony of Amos's plea to God in this judgment? We're so small. We're so weak, right? He recognizes that they are nothing compared to God. And what does Judah think? We're everything. We're totally fine. We're rich. We're strong. We have no enemies. We got this. And the prophet who sees things clearly says, Lord, we are so small. If you send a judgment of fire, we would be doomed. All right. What do locusts and fire have in common? Destruction. They're all consuming. They leave nothing behind. The judgment that is threatened will be total. This is the judgment that God is sending. It will be total. And you think about how that compares to what the people of God believed. Think about how the people would interpret a threat of judgment that doesn't materialize do they think about the middle part where the prophet pleaded on their behalf and God was merciful and withdrawing his judgment? No. They think you're chicken little, claiming that the sky is falling, and we told you we're just fine. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. So now we have two of these. Vision three. Uh, seven, seven through nine. Renee, will you read seven, seven through nine? This is what
3: he showed me. whole. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword.
0: So we describe a thing. There's a wall with a plumb line, just like there was a fire, just like there was locusts. And then there's some dialogue between God and the prophet. It's not just Amos pleading. It's some understanding, some explanation. And then there is no relenting. He does not relent from this disaster. There is no forgiveness. Why doesn't God relent From the disaster, from the judgment of this vision. What's different about this vision from the first two? The plumb line. God gives a standard by which they are to be judged. That's what a plumb line is. It is the straight line that shows you how to build the wall according to the standard. And so God has given his people the, plumb, the moral religious plumb line. Here is how you are to live according to my standard. The people have rejected that standard. And so as God explains, I've given this plumb line. There is no mercy. There is no forgiveness here because the people have utterly rejected it. God shows Amos for himself. Amos the prophet is getting a vision of the plumb line, God's standard, and Israel's crooked stick. And God is saying, this is why the judgment will come. This is why they cannot be spared. They don't line up. Vision four. Somebody read. That is eight something. uh, One through three. This is what the
1: Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never pass by them. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere, silent.
0: Whoa. Right? It's the same in many ways as the last vision. What these two visions have in common is a divine response that there will not be forgiveness. And then they have a similar dialogue structure between God and the prophet that gives us the explanation for what's happening. So he describes a thing, a basket of summer fruit. There's some dialogue. And then we're given the explanation, which is this is the end. It's not coming. The, word play here in Hebrew is that the word summer fruit is like one flick of the tongue away from the word, the word end, E-N-D. And so it's, Amos is playing on words here that the basket represents the end. Uh, this is the final warning of judgment that is coming against God's people. Then, You get preparation for judgment. This is the non-visionary material I mentioned. It's verses 4 through 14, and we don't have time to go through all of it, but there's an earthquake, there's an eclipse, the Lord is preparing his people for what's coming, and I do need somebody to read verse 11, 8-11.
3: Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord.
0: The final withdrawal of the Lord of God of the Word of God. God takes his word away from his people. Now, Christologically, if you don't see this as the three, four hundred years silence before John the Baptist, where God doesn't speak to his people before he sends Christ, and then the the destruction of Jerusalem in AD seventy when they direct Christ. I mean, this is what God is saying is You rely on the physical presence of my word. As long as I'm still talking to you, sending prophets, as long as you still have the temple where you can do your sacrifices, the parts of the religion that you can tolerate, then God is still with us. And what God is going to do is go silent. He's going to go silent on them. The word will be withdrawn. So then we get the final vision. Somebody read 9, 1 through 4.
1: Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the threshold shakes and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol from there my hand from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall fight them. They go into captivity before their enemies. There I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good.
0: This is way more serious, but every time I read this vision, I am reminded of the dread pirate Wobbits <laughs> who <laughs> takes no survivors. Right? Because that's what it is. There is no escape from God's judgment. You go wherever you want to go, God's judgment will find you. And it is certain not one will escape. And if Amos ended there, we'd say, oh crap, these people are screwed. What will become of God's people? But we have Amos 9. The restoration of God's people. Verses 11 through 15. The promise to rebuild David's fallen tent. The nations will be affected. Possession of the nations. There will be great abundance. Verse 13 about agricultural bounty. Verses 14 and 15, security for God's people, a promise to return to the land. Even in this absolute total judgment against his enemies, those who turn their backs on the word of God and create their own religion in their image, even in the midst of that, there is a faithful remnant and God's promise of restoration and blessing and security for that remnant remains. That will always be the case. Uh, so this is what we're waiting for: the salvation of the Gentiles is a fulfillment of Amos nine twelve. We'll talk a little bit about that in the sermon today. The restoration of David's fallen tent took place in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. He was lifted up in glory. The, the, the throne of David is restored in the resurrection of Christ. And then the physical part of the prophecy is manifested in the church's expansion over the globe, but also in the new heavens and the new earth, which we await. God will keep his promises to his faithful remnant, even as this total judgment. And, and we got to remember, as bad as AD 70 was, which is just the annihilation of Israel being wiped off the map historically for disobedience, for the rejection of the Messiah that is a shadow of the reality of the total and final judgment that God will bring against his enemies all of this is real and meaningful and a picture of a yet to come spiritual event uh, that will transform all of creation look I said all those things God will never leave the righteous without hope. We may be surrounded by God's judgment on unbelief. We may experience the pain of being near the consequences of unbelief. Like it may actually affect us, not just it makes us sad. It may actually make our lives harder. As God pours out judgment, it it has a splash and sprinkle effect too on the people around it. But God will never leave the righteous without hope.